This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Ross Hamilton, who is researcher and author of Star Mounds, Legacy of a Native American Mystery. Robert Bouval, author of Black Genesis, The Prehistoric Origins of Ancient Egypt, said, Ross Hamilton's book is a must-read for all who are interested in ancient star lores. Teokasin Ghost Horse, Lakota leader and host of First Voices Indigenous Radio, said, there's an old Lakota story that says, always count the stars, for if we stop counting the stars, we will cease to exist. As beings of prescience, we must bring the inherent star knowledge above to Mother Earth below, however oblivious many are to its presence. His book, Star Mounds, has lit a fire for those who yearn for their originations. Ross Hamilton, welcome to Books, Peace, and Beyond. Yeah, thank you, Taj. It's uh, it's good to be on. Thank it's you. Good to be here. Thank you. So, this book is such an incredible book, and I just really want to ask a really simple question to start off. What are yeah. star mounds? Well, in the Ohio Valley, um, the ancients created, um, I would say, over seventy earthworks that were uh, non-burial. And along with those non-burial mounds, there were just hundreds, if not thousands, of burial mounds. So it appears as though the people that created the uh, the non-burial earthworks, which are geometric and animal uh, in shape, um, it appears as though they um, were um, trying to uh, create an environment where they and their families and their descendants could work uh, recreating or creating these earthworks, these temples, I call them. Um, and so they dedicated their entire lives and lived and were buried uh, nearby. But they never, they never uh, chose to bury themselves within the walls, per se, you know, the actual walls of the earthworks. Uh, sometimes you would find a burial mound inside the complexes of the temple works. Um, which were probably people that were honorable, uh, but she never found them actually interred in the walls of the geome geometric shapes or the animal effigies per se. They range uh, um, from uh, as small as uh, half a football field uh, up to uh, just incredibly gigantic works um, that um, are comprised of circle and square in most instances. But we also have these elaborate effigies to, to uh, sacred animals like the giant boar in, in Butler County, Ohio, which no longer exists. But uh, nevertheless, it was mapped in the early part of the 1800s. So when the... Um, when the post-Revolutionary War era came upon the United States, Washington and uh, Jefferson discovered that they had no way to pay um, 
the uh, the soldiers who, who fought against the British. And so they sent out teams to beyond the Appalachian Mountains to survey the Ohio Territory, which was bigger than the state of Ohio right now. Um, and um, they uh, cordoned off 600-acre plots, and at the same time they were telling the Indians, well, we're sorry, but you can't live here anymore, which was, uh, of course, a sticking point with the Native people. And they did fight back, but it was too little, too late. And as a result, there was a, like a land rush, in a manner of speaking. And these guys were coming over the mountains and, um, and staking out or, you know, laying claim to their 600-acre plots. And um, at first they had to, to deal with hostiles, hostile local people, the native inhabitants, who, of course, didn't like being kicked out of their ancestral home, who would. But because we had gunpowder, because they had gunpowder, um, I like to think of myself as more sympathetic to Native people. <laughs> because they had gunpowder and because they had steel and because they had um, smallpox, uh, they were able to remove the, the poor indigenous folk from the premises. And what they discovered when they set up their farming operations were all these earthworks and being uneducated, and not knowing what to do, they just started digging into them at the end of the day's work, uh, planting and harvesting and weeding and, uh, you know, clearing the earth and the woods. And um, what they found just amazed them that uh, some of these earthworks were, um, you know, the temple works had squares that were a minimum of 27 acres and that's just a, these huge squares, and they were always attached to one or two circles of varying sizes. And um, so they uh, they sometimes would build their farmhouses inside there, but oftentimes they would just dig into the earthwork or or just plow into it because it seemed to be getting in the way of their of their seating. And the more they they plowed into the temple works, the more they were susceptible to to rain and weather. And so the what was once maybe as much as 20 or 30 feet in height for some of the walls um, was reduced down to a few feet and finally down to almost nothing uh, within just a few generations. Wow. Did they find anything but, uh, inside, of the, inside of the mounds? Any, I know you said some of them weren't, there was nothing in them, but the ones that had something in them, what, what was found in yeah, them? Yeah, the ones, the ones that had something in them um, astonished them because uh, they they were finding uh, intact artifacts that um, that really told the story of the how advanced these people were in art and science. And although it wasn't the white man's art and science, um, and bec and because of that, they thought that maybe they weren't on the same level as the better organized uh, in his own disciplines. Uh, um, white man's uh, art and science, um, they they uh, pretty much discarded them as Indian Stone Age and pretty much began to think that the Indians were on a lower level of intelligence because they thought that these were the ancestors of the living people. Now, some of these works were at least 2,000 years old, 
But as I've discovered, um, and as is illustrated in star mounds, um, these by, by star positioning, several of these earthworks, and which would mean all of them, uh, give away um, the understanding that um, they're actually about 5,000 years old by design, and that the, the people 2,000 or 3,000 years ago found them in ruins, found these ancient lodges and ruins, and decided to preserve them in earth and stone. And that's what the white man found. But in the actual burial mounds, they found skeletons of men and women that exceeded seven feet and eight and even nine feet sometimes in length. And they were anatomically correct. They didn't suffer from acromegaly or the disease of gigantism. And they always had very special um, ceremony um, uh, surrounding their burials. And um, most of the people that they uncovered were of, you know, usual height, which is about five feet for the women and about five feet six for the men, um, as much as five foot eight. But there's this class of, of, of men and women whose smaller end uh, were in large numbers, and they were at least six feet and robust. Uh, fairly common. This was the Adena people. But then there was always this royal class who were like seven or eight feet. And we feel that um, these temple works were the result of this royal class getting the, uh, the servant class, if you will, to uh, aid in preserving these ancient foundations from 5,000 years ago that they discovered because um, likely because their storytelling tradition and, and their information passed down through the matriarchy said that in the ancient days before our people were here, our, you know, the people that were, that were there found in the burial mounds, um, there, there was a race of people who were graced by the great spirit, and they had unusual height and strength and unusual intelligence, and um, they knew how to uh, create a situation for them to live in that was, um, that was superior to anything that the people knew, even 2,500 years after they had left, but that the people were trying to keep up the traditions of this former mystery race. And so they reconvened the foundations for their great lodges, which I call Temple Mounds. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We are the tribe that they cannot see. We live on an industrial reservation. We are the Halusa Nation. We have been called the Indians. We have been called Native American. We have been called hostile. We have been called pagan. We have been called militant. We have been called many names. We are the Halusa Nation. We are the human beings. The callers of names 
cannot see us, but we can see them. We are the hallucination. Our DNA is of earth and sky. Our DNA is of past and future. We are the hallucination. We are the evolution. The continuation. Where can we see these skeletons? Is this possible? Well, um, I have a book online that you can um, you can read. It's called uh, A Tradition of Giants, and it's on academia.edu. But if you type in on Google A Tradition of Giants, it'll probably be the first thing that comes up on the, on the list. And you just click on that, and you come to uh, academia.edu, and you'll be able to download a free copy, which explains everything. Um, and the short answer is no. Um, we, can't, we can't look at these skeletons anymore. The long answer gets into why, and it's because the, uh, the white man and the museum system back in the 1800s um, was actually very puzzled and a little frightened of what the finding these um, incredibly tall and obviously wealthy and healthy people would do um, for the native populations uh, that were living at the time. Would it give them a claim on the land that were not inferior? Um, and, and so um, that being one of the motivations, they began, the Smithsonian especially, began to confiscate um, these skeletons. And uh, they got all of the uh, local people from a number of states, especially throughout the, the, uh, the northern eastern states, but all the way down into the areas of the Great South, whenever they would find uh, numbers of gigantic skeletons, the first thought would be, oh, send it to the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. And so they did. And so we, we found just literally many scores of articles about uh, groups of uh, amateur archaeologists back in the 1800s and early 1900s that shipped off their skeletons and other artifacts to the Smithsonian thinking that they would get properly treated there when actually they fell down a rabbit hole because of um, of, uh, of um, political policies in those days, which dictated the Jim Crow Act and, um, you know, the Jim Crow action, I should say, and, and also um, the, uh, the understanding that, um, that giants were really a figment um, of the Indian and the finders' imaginations that were, you know, people that were trying to get attention claiming they had found these skeletons. Because in the Bible, it talks about how people, um, certain peoples were extremely large and, and, uh, and frightening in the old days, uh, at least in biblical lands. And they thought, 
well, maybe these were part of the biblical lambs and these were the giants. And they didn't want that because it went against uh, science and what science was trying to eliminate from its agenda, and that is religiosity and things like that. So as a result of racial prejudice, and again, uh, all that is uh, t discussed in detail in A Tradition of Giants, which you can find by typing that title in to Google. Mm -hmm. um, because of that, the giant skeletons were very quickly disappeared. And um, although there are discoveries made from time to time, even nowadays, because the cover of it was so thorough, um, it, 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 it seems like uh, the, the uh, archaeologists will say, well, we found a, a, a skeleton, and it was it was just remarkable because it was seven feet in length. And then they, but their article would, you know, get buried somewhere. And we found several articles like that because they weren't able to match their find up with the hundreds, actually thousands of other finds that were made way back when because of the suppression. But um, because of our massive search engines nowadays, we've been able to locate uh, uh, Micah Ewers, who's one of our colleagues, has been able to locate, along with uh, uh, Cecilia, um, uh, a friend of ours who does the maps, uh, many, 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 hundreds and hundreds of accounts. So when we started this project at the turn of the century, um, we found maybe uh, three, four hundred accounts, but um, we could only use a few of them because they were verifiable. But now we have hundreds of verifiable accounts. So um, I think it's uh, really time for um, anthropology to begin to accept the fact that um, there's a, a major portion of prehistory that's been lost. and. Um, uh, although, you know, the way I'm speaking now, it might be uh, considered by some to be sensationalism. And that's why I enjoin people to go ahead and just look at the book, because um, it was written over many years and it was uh, done in a calm, um, from a calm reference point. And uh, there's all the questions and, and, uh, and doubts are allayed in, in the book. But as far as the star mounds are concerned, mm -hmm. Because um, they they their their coverages coverages over foundations that maybe originated 5,000 or more years ago, I think that um, the book itself um, is a testimony to the superior intellect and the know-how of a very ancient race of mysterious people that lived uh, in the United States, especially the eastern United States and Canada, uh, way back when. Um, there's a huge picture um, of, a, of a great eagle imprinted on the landscape. And the only way we've been able to recover that picture is through Indian legend and through uh, where people were buried. And um, the picture may be as old as 7,000 years, but it's like the, the great American eagle. And... Um, its gloriole goes up into Canada. The head of the, of the eagle or phoenix um, is uh, um, uh, the state of Michigan. And um, it's surrounded by the, the big waters, Michigani. And um, that's the original foundation.
place uh, for Turtle Island, which is Mackinac or Mackinac, as the locals say. And Indian culture, to even today, speaks of uh, Turtle Island with great reference, reverence, because in the days of Turtle Island, the people were far more robust and tireless, and they knew how to go about um, with their agricultural practices to ensure their strength and longevity. And that's really another issue that uh, I don't deal with much um, in Star Mounds, but that I will be dealing with more in future publications. Let me ask and that you, is what, that depending on what we eat, we have the possibility to live a thousand years, mm -hmm. just like we're told Noah and Adam did in the old days. And um, <clears throat> they discovered the secret of, of lightning control and the ability to fertilize the land um, in a sort of controlled way, way back when, when Turtle Island uh, was, uh, was active. And they had such a, a wonderful ability to survey that they went all the way from, from um, Mackinac Island and Sault Ste. Marie down into the Dayton, Cincinnati area, down into the Lexington area, and then down uh, through Tennessee into a sacred area, um, and then down to Atlanta, and then finally down to Tallahassee. They all form a, a straight line due north. And this is the backbone of the great phoenix. And the phoenix um, rises once every uh, 700 years. Actually, it's 7,000 years, but our, um, our, the Greek version and the Egyptian version has limited it to 700 because the earth has fallen into a state of um, sort of uh, a forgetfulness since the rising of the last phoenix. And... Um, when the phoenix rises, um, the, the whole planet gets well again. And this uh, technology of the control of lightning and even the preemptive controlling of the, the electricity of the clouds by drawing down the cloud energy prior to the lightning uh, forming and coming down to Earth was as far as they were able to take it and um, perhaps even further because they created these temples I'm talking about, and somewhere on the, and you can see these temples in um, in Star Mounds, somewhere in the premises, uh, they would have a Manitou, or they would have a place where they drew down the energy from the sky, and they would draw the energy up from the earth. And that's why these Star Mounds are all built over on, on elevated pieces of land, for the most part, and also near uh, focuses of running water, rivers and large streams and so forth. Because um, it's in these areas that earth energy accumulates, uh, which is generated by the magnetic field as the earth um, moves through it. Um, it uh, produces energy within the earth, like a positive charge. And when that energy gets to the, to the uh, surface of the earth, slowly and painstakingly, um, uh, the, uh, it, it goes to higher areas, and, and generally when a, a, a disturbed weather comes, the lightning will tend to strike uh, where most of the Earth energy is accumulated. So they knew that the creation of artificial mounds and totems could um, effectively draw down the energy from, from the sky 
which is mentioned in the Revelation 13.13 as being a forbidden practice, uh, you know, a pagan practice. But in reality, it was very advanced, uh, almost uh, actually Atlantean in, in practice. They created uh, uh, this type of energy that only humans and uh, certain types of wildlife can create nowadays. And we, uh, we like to think of it as the basis for love and it's like vital energy. It, it, it's called vitality or chi or prana, but the earth uh, in combination with lightning, combining the negative energy of the lightning with the positive energy of the earth can create this stuff um, in great abundance. Nowadays, um, since the loss of the temple systems around the earth, including the pyramids of Mexico and, and Egypt and China and Russia and other places, um, because of the loss of the capstones and the destruction of the Manitous in, in, the, in the United States, um, the, uh, the energies haven't been coming down in a controlled way, and they, they hit at random. Now, when this energy is generated in the Earth, or, or with the help of the Earth and the sky, it goes out in the Earth and is immediately sucked up by the plants along with the fresh rainwater, and it causes things to grow almost at an exponential rate because it's the magic elixir of life that it contains that. Only the alchemists understand it nowadays. But in the old days, uh, the great agriculturalists were, were um, outdoor alchemists, and they knew how to supply this energy on a permanent 24-7, 60 seconds every minute basis, something that we're completely lacking in, and the reason why we consider the Garden of Eden a myth. Now, I consider the star mounds to be the last remnant of a culture that understood how to create the conditions necessary for a paradise. So what do the, are there any Native American cultures today that are directly connected to these earthworks? And if so, w what are their explanations for the mounds? Well, there, there really aren't um, any cultures that are extant today that, um, that could be uh, given credit for the building of the earthworks. There were indigenous people living uh, with the earthworks at one time, but um, they were driven out when the uh, Revolutionary War so how do the today's Native American cultures feel about the earthworks? They're sacred ground, and that they, they do lay claim to them because they lay claim to everything in the United States um, as being their sacred territory. But they're, they're not organized well enough yet mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to make any serious claims. Now, you said something um, that was important. You, you said, if I heard you right, correctly, the star mounds were aligned to the stars in the sky, plus they were also an energy source. And from reading the book, um, it, some of the mathematics and so forth that go into this kind of arrangement is something that <laughs> we thought only will come from Greece or Egypt or so forth, but it shows how, I think it shows how advanced they were. So I just want to ask you, you know, what does this say about the intelligence of, uh, you know, the ancient, the ancient Americans versus what we've been taught to believe? Um, well, 
it's funny because um, you know the people that designed the earthworks, not you know, designed them, not the people that that built them 2,500 years after they they were found in shambles. Um, the people that that built them, and archaeologists believe they were all made 2,000 years ago, approximately, give or take a few hundred years, uh, either either direction. The people that that made them were living um, at the same time as um, the great Greek mathematicians, um, Pythagoras and Euclid and, um, and, um, and so forth, who um, are credited with the uh, basic foundation for um, uh, describing or uh, going about computing uh, the formulas necessary um, to create these earthworks. So apparently these cultures that designed them, even the cultures that reconstructed them were living either before uh, the great Greeks, the great Greek geniuses, or at the same time, and depending on which you'd rather uh, believe, whether they were uh, designed 5,000 years ago or actually uh, just built uh, um, 20, 20, 20, uh, 20 centuries ago. So um, it's really kind of interesting when you think about it. Obviously, if, you know, either way you go, um, whoever created the earthworks knew a lot more than the Greeks did about mathematics and geometry. We'll be right back. She would break to the same institution that lied to the whole fucking world. Can you look me in my eyes and tell me that you ain't trying to kill us all? You can't mistake me for a sheep. I'm about to get involved. Make sure you read everything before you flip the page. Cause I'm a one man rally on the biggest stage. Because of you, a lot of youth can't communicate. We lost our identity. We still trying to recuperate. We used to hunt for food. Now we ain't shooting straight. Confused by the new world order. We don't know who to hate. Instead of killing our own, we should focus on the fam and protecting our home. Stack your money up and buy land, purchase some arms. Teach your kids how to survive in the eye of the storm. It's going down, man. You can try to confuse my pride, but no, you can't take my soul. Your whole world is living a lie. And yes, baby, this I know we need the truth. In the book, you talk about the Zodiac. And, you know, when we talk about the Zodiac today, we just associate that with horoscopes how did the ancient cultures view and uh, use the zodiac and how does this correlate with the mounds well there, there's really no difference between the zodiac um, astrology and astronomy um, uh, astrology is an outgrowth of astronomy but um, because so many astrologers became detached from the stars themselves um, the, the, the astronomers began to uh, discredit them, and so astronomy uh, became a separate science from astrology. But the people of the ancient Ohio Valley uh, apparently um, um, were astronomical um, in the true sense of the word, in that they religiously regarded the 12 
um, segments of the night sky that show themselves where the sun rises. Um, most people don't understand uh, the, the field, um, uh, the working sky field uh, of, um, of astrology, um, true astrology, which is, uh, like I said, an outgrowth of astronomy. But um, where the sun rises on in any given month, um, uh, if, if you were to be looking at the sky before you saw uh, the sunrise, um, you would see uh, one of the so-called 12 houses of the zodiac, which would include the constellation Capricorn and the constellation um, uh, Scorpius, constellation Pisces, Aquarius, and so forth and so on. There are 12, uh, some say 13 because of Ophiuchus. But um, the understanding of astrology really is the understanding of astronomy. And these people understood it so well that um, they didn't have to uh, lay out a circular um, residential area for these houses. Um, they would build them all maybe surrounding the, the serpent, but they built them in places that were advantageous to contracting the energies of the earth. So in England, there's another site called Glastonbury where it's believed that the, the Glastonbury tour or the great mound at the center um, of, of the field uh, actually served as the, as this, you know, the axle point of the 12 houses of Glastonbury. And you know, people have thought, well, that's the way it should be. You know, they're just mimicking what's up in the sky down to the earth. And they call that heaven's mirror. But in the Ohio Valley, they didn't do it that way. They were so advanced that they wanted their houses of the Zodiac to be real houses of power, natural power from the sky and the earth. So they couldn't do that on any given parcel of land because uh, they couldn't find anywhere that had enough energy associated with it. So they would construct their, their houses of power uh, on suitable acreages of land. And so you see, um, instead of a circle uh, around the circle, the serpent mound, you see, um, you see uh, the astrological earthworks um, in different areas, all surrounding serpent mound, but not necessarily in the correct order or this, all the same distance from the serpent mound. But interestingly, the serpent is the center of all the earthworks, burial and non-burial, in the greater Ohio Valley. So it's really quite interesting, again, when you think about it, because the serpent really seems to be the hub or center of their great philosophy. And these people were, like I said, so advanced that they didn't have to make it obvious and directly create the, uh, the star patterns around the serpent. That, that would have been difficult for them uh, if they wanted to uh, engender power to them all. So they built them, still surrounding the serpent, but in a way where uh, each of them could have a hill or uh, a river nearby that would help them to uh, to draw power. So, uh, do you understand that? Uh, yeah. Under yeah. Concept? Yeah. That's okay. That's interesting. So, um, knowing that you know it didn't always correlate with the stars, 
knowing that it was used in places where they can generate power. What what was interesting in, in this in the book was if you could talk about, you know, the importance of storytelling in the Native American culture and its connection to the earthworks and the stars. Storytelling is really more than a sacred art, um, especially when you consider the transmission of, of oral um, oral history to be absolutely paramount in preserving the ethos of your people. The ethos is the essential spirit that a people possess. And in the memories of people, converted into stories that are spoken externally to the people. You need to have um, contained in it everything that the ancestors would want you to have significant of their culture. So in a way, it's more than a sacred art. It's a holy art. It's something that comes from within, which is a, a place, a heavenly place, where people don't make mistakes. So when these stories are told, um, the connection that they have to these ancient earthworks is one that's given with the greatest amount of care. Now, in spite of that, because the agricultural and therefore the higher religious aspect of the people has deteriorated from 7,000 years ago, and the same thing happened all over the planet. Because of that, people have lost their faculty for recalling uh, even the ethos of their people. And uh, this is, of course, um, not something that was done intentionally. But when the white man came, he really made it more difficult to preserve. But in the course of... Um, researching the book, uh, I was able to come up with uh, a number of stories that seemed to be connected with these ancient temple sites. And uh, it was, it, although although the stories have turned into, um, you know, uh, more or less accounts that, that use um, metaphor for certain things, like, for example, the story of the of the uh, of the magician who used to take little children away from the tribes from time to time, never to be seen again, to serve as their apprentices and teach them the magical arts, and so they could uh, have someone to take over when they when they would pass away. Um, and of course, these ancient magicians were very powerful. They lived to be. Oh, many centuries longer, older than the regular people. And they knew how to conceal their whereabouts because they lived in a different zone that could see into the mortal world and yet um, uh, could remain safe. And uh, that, that itself is an internal uh, world. And so the magic that they had and the magic that they used uh, was held in, in great regard by the people but also they would lose um, <clears throat> the ability to understand where the magicians got their power from. So the, the story that goes along with the Butler County boar, for example, uh, I know I'm a great boar, but 
this is about a giant pig. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it uh, it discusses, and I got it from Cherokee tradition, how uh, they were able to subdue this magician and uh, uh, entitle themselves to all of his wisdom and knowledge. And it's a fascinating story, and it seems to match up perfectly when uh, I was able to match up the stars with a specific earthwork, work of the, of the giant boar. Then there's also the story of the great turtle. And actually, all of them are, are uh, in some way or another, uh, in, in a, in a, in, if no other way, a metaphorical way, sometimes direct metaphor, um, connected with uh, a lot of these star notes. That's what I thought was... Some of them are uncanny. Yeah, that's what I thought was incredible. I was I, when I when I was reading the stories, I was like, you know, today with science, they make it so scientific and kind of hard for everyone to kind of grasp the science behind things. While these stories were like very clever because you know it was highly scientific, but on the surface, they made it easy for seem for people to learn and remember. You know, they would uh, anthropomorphize the animals to like to represent the celestial bodies. I thought that was genius and brilliant. And I think you're right. It's like we, we lost that, that way of looking at stories in a way that's scientific as well. Yeah. There's been a a major loss. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back. The people, the people, the people, took on many shapes the bear the elk the antelope the elephant the deer the mineral the iron the copper the colt and the rubber the coffee the cotton the sugar the people the people the people the germ traveled faster than the bullet they harvest the mountainside protect the crops herd the cattle the people the people the people the people the people the women and children were separated from the men they're divided as according to the regional filters of their minds. The violence of arrogance crawls into the air, nestles into the geospatial cortex. We are not a conquered people. You said how the Native Americans, they would say that everything wants to be a circle. And, you know, and I think you said in the, in the book that when, when looking at the how the mounds are put together and how they correlate it with the stars and so forth. They would use stuff like the golden mean, Fabinaki's sequence, Pythagorean theorem, a lot of geometry. And the circle was always seemed like the foundation. I found that to be very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I think one of the first um, expressions of arithmetic or mathematics that come as a result of, well, Self-realization, God-realization, um, knowledge of the of the uh, spontaneous creation of matter from nothing, right? I mean, where did anything come from? Mm-hmm. Is embodied in the golden ratio. I mean, we all have our favorite mathematics. Some say pi is the ultimate uh, mathematic, and certainly it has its place. But it's an endless, endless decimalized um, piece of math that um, um, in a way 
um, if it causes us to have to continue calculating it, and no computer has ever successfully uh, calculated it, because they all stop at some point. You know, you can't use a computer to continue to calculate pi. It's a waste of time because it goes on ad infinitum. And it's pretty much the same way with the golden mean. Only the golden mean really is um, the message of the spontaneous growth of life itself. It's the... Um, it's the ability that, for us to activate the internal vision. The golden mean, the golden ratio, is in everything. And therefore, even though it's also an irrational decimal, and just goes on, on infinitum, I believe that, that um, if you already have knowledge of pi, pi gives it character. So they embody both these axioms in these earthworks, and they did it in sublime ways. And I show uh, in it in, in the book uh, they did it intentionally. In fact, when you get to the Newark octagon and circle, if you divide the you know the area of the circle into the area of the circle that would surround the octagon. It's true phi, 1.618, etc., etc. And they seem to have built up to the Newark Circle and Octagon, which is now a golf course, by the way, 18 holes, mm. um, built up to it by degrees, embodying those degrees in the other temples. It's just incredible. They, they left a message for us that's so sophisticated, it would take a crazy man to really, to really, or a woman, to define it uh, and to give it uh, explanation. Yeah, and I, I thought what was interesting is um, just seeing how they used all this math and how they connected the mounds to the stars and, and some where they didn't, but just all the math and, and all the symbolism, some of the was so similar to what you might find over in ancient Egypt with the correlation with the stars and so forth. It was almost like that world, you know, whatever that time was, that whole world was communicating in that way. It, it, and now it's just vanished. So it's just amazing. Yeah. At one time, heaven seems to have taken over the imaginations of, of men and women. And I've done a study. I haven't, I haven't released this book, but um, it's going to be called something like Star Art. But I can show how um, in almost every ancient culture, including the Chinese, who saw the stars connected differently than us, than, than uh, the Greek system or the Western system, which I believe originated in the Ohio Valley, by the way, um, that uh, that they all seem to base their greatest works of art um, upon star patterns. And they seem to have done it in a way that um, was disconnected from each other on the level of language, technology, or religiosity, or, you know, religion, or, you know, anything 
that has to do with worldly or earthly culture uh, separates them dramatically, but all their best artists seem to be connected through the stars, which, which some people say, well, that's not surprising. Well, it's not in a way, but, but why in the medium of art? And I can show how, you know, ancient fortresses, uh, ancient uh, coins that were made by the cult, by the Celts, um, even the, the beautiful stone carvings of the Maya and, uh, the ground plans for the, um, for the, some of the great Chinese temples, um, the religious plans for the Kaaba, um, and several of the, uh, of the temple of the ancient, uh, uh, Hebraic temples, the Greek temples, um, and, um, uh, other other medium um, uh, all show that they based their um, idea for the foundations of their oil paintings or their stone carvings or their relief carvings on the stars. But we don't have that anymore. It seems like it's suddenly, I mean, you hit it right on the money, Todd. It seems like somehow it just went out of our consciousness. Because we don't see the stars like the ancients did. As a matter of fact, we don't really see the stars that much <laughs> because we blot them out with our city lights. So, what do you think we relinquish, you know, from not being spiritually connected, you know, to the earth and the sky and, and the universe and the stars like like the ancient cultures? Well, I think the first and, and greatest thing is we can no longer hear the holy reverberations of the earth and the planets and the stars. There is a holy sound current. It's called by various names in the different religions and philosophies. Um, the Christians call it the Logos. The Hebrews have over 50 different names for it. The Greeks called it um, Logos or Am or um, the word uh, for the uh, for the latter-day Christians. It's the voice of the creator saying his name. The Sikh religion calls it uh, Nam. Uh, the, uh, the Hindus call it Om. The Buddhists uh, translated, call it transcendental sound. But it's the... It's, it emanates from every atom, and you know if you were into uh, string physics, it's the string, mm. <laughs> the smallest possible unit of measure that keeps the atoms reverberating. It's a mystery element that keeps everything manifested in an illusionary fabric that we call uh, matter and time and space. So that reverberation, we're deaf to it now. But when you listen to it, it releases your consciousness beyond the confinement of your brain and your mind itself, which is like a magnetic field surrounding your body that's generated from the, uh, from the, from the um, uh, shape of your brain. And that's what we're missing. That's what's been taken away from us because we've confined ourselves to a sort of righteous, materialistic way for culture. Mm -hmm. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
Palusa Nation. The human beings. The people. See the spiritual in the natural. Through sense and feeling. Everything is related. All the things of earth and in the sky have spirit. Everything is sacred. Confronted by the alien nation, the subjects and the citizens see the material religions through trauma and numb. Nothing is related. All the things of the earth and in the sky have energy to be exploited. Even themselves, mining their spirits into souls sold. Into nothing is sacred, not even their self. The Ally Nation, Alia Nation. So from all of this groundbreaking research, what surprised you the most? I was thrilled that everything that I thought may have been true about Native American people having had a, an extraordinarily advanced culture, indigenous to the earth, but a culture that rediscovered the earth, and all of her life and power once lived here and passed away. That's what I discovered. You discovered that uh, that that really sacred connection, it seems like, if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, in order to get the stories translated properly or transmitted, and in order to get the stars, I had to be listening to sound current for many hours before I started. And that, that made me receptive to the voice of the beloved. We call, we call that voice the creator, the great spirit, um, the universe. We call, we call it God. But really, it's love. It's love with a capital L. I like to say... Um, you know, you're familiar with the phrase, God is love. Yeah. But very few people have really thought it back to the point where they've reversed it and say, love is God, mm -hmm. is what gives us hope, is what gives us life, and what gives us light. And the, the ancients call love God. And th that's been taken by the material culture and turned into sort of, you know, again, I'll use your word, anthropomorphification, <laughs> anthropomorphized um, the, uh, the concept of God um, or love into a man, uh, you know, a powerful uh, male figure that uh, dominates everything and everybody and has whims of being violent and likes to punish people at times. It just has never been true. Mm. Never been true. Any God that, that calls for revenge is not God. It's some guy 
is trying to get you to think that uh, the, the universe is behind what he's saying. Mm-hmm. So love is love, and it, you can't define it. You can't put it into a, a form. Ross Hamilton, thank you so much for being on the show today. Truly appreciate it. it it's my pleasure, Ty. Maybe we'll talk again soon. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we will then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. Explore.